0: What's going on, world? Welcome to Changing the Narrative. This is a show where we discuss everything from
1: politics, philosophy, theology, social issues, economics, and more from a biblical perspective. The main goal of this show is to find truth. What is the truth about
0: all these matters and how should we respond once we have a greater understanding of the issues? Let's discuss. Welcome to Changing the Narrative. Today, we have special guest, Brian McGlinchey. He is an independent journalist and founder of 28pages.org, which was involved with getting the 28 pages redacted, uh, pages from the um, 9-11 report released um, in regards to uh, the victims' families that uncovered Saudi ties to 9-11. His work has been featured or quoted and cited by the Associated Press, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, The Intercept, The Hill, Fox News, and many others. Welcome to the show, Brian.
2: Hey, great to be with you, Rashad. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on today. Um, So, Brian, there's a few different things I want to talk about. Um, In regards to 28 Pages, um, your organization, 28 Pages, what, what made you start that organization?
2: Uh, really, at the time, I was looking for an outlet for some of my
0: energies.
2: Uh, uh, I was looking for, specifically, I'm, I'm talking about energies of frustration uh, against you know, the status quo of U.S. foreign policy and government in general. And uh, I wasn't sure you know, quite what to do. And then I, I happened to see a press conference that was uh, being hosted by three uh, congressional leaders of the effort to declassify those 28 pages uh, that detailed Saudi government connections to the 9-11 plot. Um, and when I saw that, I then you know I found the topic very interesting, and then when I looked I saw there's a void on the uh, on the internet. You had congressional leadership uh, you but you didn't really have anybody pushing grassroots involvement or a public awareness campaign, so I thought okay here's my here's an opportunity for me to to uh, take my energies and put them to use on something so I created twenty eight pagesorg to serve as a information and activism hub for the Movement to declassify those twenty eight pages
0: Gotcha, and the twenty eight pages are pages that were um, classified originally.
2: Yes, and a lot of people, including me when I first started down this path, I thought they were from and a lot of people I think they're from the nine eleven commission report. they're actually from a joint congressional intelligence inquiry into nine eleven that came before the nine eleven commission report. so this was a several hundred page report. Um, looking at the intelligence community's preparation and activities, you know, leading up to 9-11, you know, how were they caught off guard, this type of thing. And, uh, it was a very comprehensive investigation by the House and Senate, uh, intelligence committees.
1: Right. Um,
2: and then when it came time to publish the report, um, you know, several hundred page report throughout the rest of the report, you know, there are periodic redactions of a name or place, that kind of thing. Um, But when it came to this final chapter of the report, this 28-page chapter, uh, the Bush administration insisted that the entire thing be blanked out and and hidden from public view. Um, So that immediately prompted pushback from the authors of the report, and especially Senator Bob Graham of Florida, who was chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Um, There was an effort, you know, immediately from the Senate, there was a A letter from, I think, 46 senators uh, to the Bush administration imploring them to, you know, agree to declassify those pages. That didn't happen. So that was way back in, I think, 2003. And so it had long been simmering, and Bob Graham, even after he left office, had continued to push for it. And then you saw in uh, 2013, uh, three congressional leaders got together—and I say leaders, I mean leaders of this cause. They were kind of rank-and-file members. Walter Jones, a Republican from North Carolina, Thomas Massey uh, from Kentucky, he's a Republican also, and then uh, these are all House members, and then Stephen Lynch, a Democrat from Massachusetts. You had you know bipartisan trio that really took this cause up, you know, created, drafted a resolution uh, from the House uh, urging the declassification. So there was a you know, public push that 28pages.org and others were part of to and get more members of Congress to, to sign on to it uh, and build this momentum to uh, get those pages out.
0: Right. Now, this report is um, implying or showing um, connections between the uh, Saudi Arabian government and Saudi royals um, supporting the 9-11 hijackers, correct?
2: Right. It was a, it was a, uh, a summary, a detailed summary of investigative leads that, were pursued or were still in flight um, that pointed towards Saudi government officials, apparent you know, who, people who were perceived to be Saudi agents uh, working for the Saudi government, um, who were all you had ties, links, connections of one sort or another to people uh, close to Al Qaeda or the 9/11 plotters, or you know, or hijackers who were uh, in the United States ahead of the attack.
0: Okay, and then Saudi ambassador to the United States, uh, Prince Bandar bin Sultan. Um, I think his nickname was Bandar Bush, right? Um, and he was a close confidant, um, confidant to uh, George W. Bush. Um, he classified the 28 pages according to um, your site. Um, why do you think the Bush administration wanted to or, or attempted to— um, cover that up?
2: Yeah, I think it's a, a couple, a few different reasons. Um, you know, I think we have to mention one of them, which is what you alluded to, the, the closeness of the Bush family to, the, uh, to Saudi Arabia and to you know, Prince Bandar, who was, uh, as you said, the Saudi ambassador to the United States during the time of you know, 9-11 leading up to it. Um, uh, beyond that, though, I mean, you have you have larger geopolitical aspects of this—the the close relationship of the United States government and Saudi the Saudi government um, as so-called allies. Um, but also, too, and I think really pointedly, um, at, at the same time, this report was being drafted, and this decision to, de- to, to classify this information and keep it out of public view was being made. Um, that's coinciding with the run up to the US invasion of Iraq. And if listeners go to 28pages.org, they can find an interview I did with um, uh, Lawrence Wilkerson, who is chief of staff to Secretary of State Colin Powell in the Bush White House. And he he spells out that uh, and reinforces the idea that these pages really had to be kept secret, because otherwise they would have distracted from this war narrative that was being cultivated to promote an invasion of Iraq. You know, there's a lot of uh, innuendo and aspersions and and flat falsehoods, you know, being dropped to try to link uh, Saddam Hussein to 9-11. So, and those were a little bit murky. I mean, can you imagine if it was a 28-page report coming out at that time of, you know, written by or summarizing the FBI's activities and investigations, naming a, a whole host of officials, including the Saudi ambassador, um, yeah that really would have distracted from that narrative that they were trying to to uh foster that right. led to that invasion
0: yeah and and the Bushes, um they had business relationships with the saudi arabian government correct or yeah uh, yeah Lines? i
2: mean uh, ties between like firms associated with the bush family and uh, um you know his associates and Houston and Texas and that type of thing with, with uh, Saudi Arabia yeah I think the bigger thing was the, just the larger geopolitical relationship right. That, that right. Just the arms trade, the oil trade, and everything else that um, I mean it makes a mockery of so much rhetoric in the war on terror you know when uh, right. the first uh, address from the White House, you know after 9/11 it was talked about how we're going to we'. will we won't. You're either with the terrorists or you're against them. If you harbor them or aid them, you know you are enemy. But that was, I mean, uh, you know, it's well documented that there are you know a lot of links and financial connections between Saudi royalty and Al Qaeda and, and other terrorist groups. So, um, it kind of really makes a, a mockery of the whole concept.
0: Right. Why? Why do you think that um, the U.S. government has maintained? Um, a relationship with the Saudi government like in a friendly manner, like why do we continue to be allies with them if they've assisted in in these acts
2: yeah I mean you've got this long tradition of this very close relationship between the two countries you know dating back to world war two and there's an iconic photo of fDR uh, you know on the I think on the on the deck of a ship meeting with uh, the Saudi king, you know, and from that point forward, every president, you know, of both parties, despite their rhetoric before getting in office, once they're in office, you know, they, they, they continue this pattern. Um, You know, I think, uh, you know, for a long time, I think, I think it's less important now, but I think, you know, for a long time, the, the uh, oil relationship was critical. Um, You know, we're less dependent, uh, you know, by far than we used to be on Middle Eastern oil. Um, there's a lot of people with vested interest and financial interest in this relationship. Um, right. the, uh, there's a term called this tyranny of the status quo. And it kind of refers to the fact that you know, whatever the current status quo is on any issue or topic, it's very difficult to undo it because of all the vested interests that build up in it. And so where Saudi Arabia is concerned, you know, oil is one thing, but you know, one thing that's very underappreciated about the relationship is the enormous amount of arms sales that go to Saudi Arabia, and you, you saw that we saw that very vividly with the Trump administration, where I mean Trump before he took office, while he was running for president, he he was at the podium saying, to, referring to nine eleven, saying he was condemning the Iraqi invasion. He's saying you may find out the Saudis the Saudis did it. <laughs> he, he said there are mm-hmm. some secret pages, and I think he was clearly referring to the twentieth pages, which at that time were still. Classified. Um, there's some secret pages. You might find out they knocked the towers down. Well, then he takes office, and it's been a long-standing tradition that your first state visit abroad as a president is either to Mexico or Canada, you know, to one of our two neighbors. He broke that tradition. His first visit, he gave that enormous honor and tradition-breaking honor to Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so he went there first. I mean, it underscores the. The difference once people take office and then, you know, I think we all saw the pictures of him in the Oval Office touting, uh, sitting with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, touting, uh, you know, an enormous uh, weapons purchase, you know, which, mm-hmm. you know, is an economic boost, an employment boost, and every president you know, wants to keep employment high and keep that money coming in. But and then beyond that, you know, the economy generally, you know, you've got all when I get back to the tyranny, the status quo, you've got all these arms manufacturers. You definitely don't want to see that Apple cart upset. You know they they don't want to rock that boat whatsoever. You know, keep 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 relations with Saudi Arabia going, um, and you know let's just keep this this great business transaction set that we have going. And th- and they fuel the status quo by in, in even broader ways. You know not only influencing politicians directly, but if you look at uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, which is one of the most revered strategic defense uh, think tanks in washington d c Yeah, they receive donations from Saudi Arabia and other you know countries like that, and right. from arms manufacturers so they are you know sponsoring this entity that's put, that we we think of as a think tank as being scholars who are just uh you know seeking the truth and but you know it their' scholarship quote unquote when you look at it it's so tainted and slanted it reads a lot of times like it was written by uh Saudi embassy officials it's that bad
0: right well you know you would think because uh you know we started this war on terror and we're so passionate well the U.S. government is so passionate about um attacking terrorists and um, stopping terror terrorism but yet we're still allied with um a nation that has been engaged terrorism so you would think you know we, we would uh, call that out right um the 28 pages um still have redacted sections correct
2: yes they were declassified in the summer of 2016 uh, by the obama administration you know, towards the end of his uh uh term in office and they uh, yeah there's a many redactions throughout. I think something like 90 redactions. If you add it all up, it probably accumulates to about three pages, you know, collectively equivalent worth of material. Um, So you're left curious about what (laughs) what, uh, still has to be seen. But they did reveal, you know, new details such as uh, direct cash payments from the Saudi prince Bandar, the Saudi ambassador, to a, someone who the FBI had identified as a, an extremist in California, who uh, that extremist was said to have bragged to an FBI informant about all the assistance he gave to two 9-11 hijackers. So, I mean, that, that gives you a great example of, imagine if those 28 pages had been released, and that was a headline in 2002 or three at the same time we're marching towards war in Iraq, I mean, the, the American people would say, what in, <laughs> what, what in right. the world are we talking about here? What are we doing? I mean, imagine if you, or imagine if you change the names, now, let's say it wasn't the Saudi ambassador to the United States, let's say it was uh, an Iraqi official or an Iranian official. I mean, do you think for a second, the US government would classify those pages and not want everybody to see them? You know, they'd be papered on every uh, light post out there.
0: Right, exactly. Um, In in regards to those 28 pages, legislators or the the redacted, I'm sorry, the uh, basically uncensored version without Mm -hmm. the redactions, Congress members can read those pages, but they can only do so um, in a highly secure facility beneath the U.S. Capitol. um, And they're not allowed to bring support staff or electronics with them, and they may take no notes and are observed closely. I was reading on your website. Right. Um, And you said they, I think on your site, it says they can read it on the floor, but um, that would jeopardize their ability to go back and read classified information. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, a a lot of people, there's something called the speech and debate clause of the Constitution, and it's widely interpreted and understood to mean that basically a member of Congress can say whatever they want from the, Podium of the Of the House or Senate, uh, without any bad consequence, um, the pen you might recall the, the the Pentagon papers, which came out I guess in the early seventies and these were i think Department of Defense documents that really revealed that at the same time the u s government was telling the public that hey the war in Vietnam was going great, they knew it was going terribly it really punched a big hole in the storyline that was being presented to the American people. Well, those pages were you know, leaked by uh, Daniel Ellsberg. And then um, a senator re- read them from the floor of the Senate. So it's a way of uh, declassifying them by reading them into the public record. And yes, you, that's a good point. That So a lot of people say, well, gee, why don't, why don't members of Congress who feel strongly about this just do the same thing Uh, regarding the 28 pages. And uh, yeah they could, uh, there's some complications. Number one, they'd have to memorize them because you're not allowed to take notes when you're looking at it. So to, whereas I think Ellsberg was reading them, you know, from a hand, (laughs) he was holding the pages in his hand. Um, uh, uh, Here you'd have to, you know, try to, I guess, remember key details and then say them. Uh, But more importantly, you know, if If you remember Congress, you feel strongly about this. You probably want to keep having access to classified information. So while you could read these 28 pages, you'd probably then have future uh, requests to read classified information uh, declined. So, and and I think maybe they think too that uh, enough came out in here that there's not anything too much more explosive in there. Um, Right. That.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um, You know. you would think, you know, that uh, because you hear the, the uh, US government officials always talking about transparency. We want to be a government of transparency, but right. yet, yet we have all this going on. Uh, last question on that. I think at some point, I, I definitely want to go into more detail about that. Maybe on 9-11 we can, um, you know, set up another uh, mm-hmm. interview, but um, the Bushes flew the bin Ladens out of the country on, on 9-11, is that correct?
2: Uh, it's, yeah, it's very close to being, it's basically, it's essentially just about correct. Um, it, uh, when 9-11 happened, there was an immediate air traffic shutdown of the entire country that lasted for, you know, I can't remember how many days, but several days. Um, I live very close to the airport and it, uh, I for anybody else who was like, that was kind of spooky if you lived near an airport because it was just totally different to have quiet skies day after day and not, not hearing anything or seeing anything. Um, but an exception was made, um, and a, a jet basically, I think it was a Saudi jet, it wasn't like a US jet, but a Saudi jet basically acted like a bus and went from point to point around the country um, picking up Saudi royals uh, and and then... The, I think by the time that they were leaving the... Uh, uh, shutdown in the United States was, was lifting as well. But the point was that, yes, a special accommodation was underway to whisk all of these people out of the country. And some were in, I think, Kentucky buying racehorses. And uh, I think there's some in Boston. So this, this jet's going around picking people up to take people out. Um, and, you know, when you're doing this, you, this is basically a crime, right? 9-11, we think of it as a terrorist attack, but in another way, you know, it's a mass murder. And so an investigation is underway. You want to talk to as many witnesses, people as possible. So right. it's not to say that anybody that was being whisked out of the country or that anybody any, was guilty of anything or necessarily, but the idea that you would just hoover all these people up or allow that to happen and then leave the country without being talked to when... Yeah, there are connections between, you know, various salaries like Royals and uh as we would find and uh yeah. Al Qaeda. Um yeah, you just want to at least talk to them. So that was pretty extraordinary. I mean really another extraordinary anecdote is that you know nine eleven happens and within the next two days I think Bandar Bush is on the uh uh back porch of the white house smoking cigars with uh george w bush and uh i guess dick changing condoleezza rice or something like that um mm. you know while the towers are still smoldering they're kind of chilling
0: <laughs> yeah
2: I, I don't take that as you know they did 9 11 or anything like that but uh you it, it just kind of goes to show the the yeah relationship
0: the suspicion still, yeah yeah yeah, it's amazing. Um, now, jumping into your uh, one of your um, recent articles um, on. Um, yeah, correct. Um, you wrote an article titled uh, Advocates of Economic Sanctions Mirror the Morality of Al-Qaeda, which is uh, it's pretty strong. Um, so in that article, um, you start off talking about the Iran nuclear plan and. Um, and you talk about Biden not re- uh, relaxing um, sanctions on Iraq. I'm sorry, on Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, let me ask you, why do we have sanctions on Iran?
2: In
1: um, your
0: opinion.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, there's, there's the, the public reason and there's the real reason. I mean, the, the, the public reason is that um, the United States government is... Alarmed by their nuclear program, and thus we want to coerce the government of Iran into, you know, further limiting it or abandoning it or or what have you. Um, also, you know, it's regularly said that Iran is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. That's a very very dubious charge at best. Um, I think that crown, if you were to give it, would go to Saudi Arabia certainly. Um, uh, i've those are the you know the public reasons i think the real reason is that it's part of a program to basically keep Iran as a regional power subdued and weak um, uh, if you really examine the issue of the Iranian nuclear program um, and look at its history um i don't think there is a nuclear there is no nuclear weapons program in iran I, i'm pretty sure that's conclusive that we can say that. Um, the father of the Iranian nuclear program is Dwight Eisenhower. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. you go back to that. It was, uh, you know, Adams for Peace was a program where we were, United States government was you know, promoting uh, nuclear energy and so forth. So that, that was the beginning of their, their enrichment of uranium and their, their work on, on, uh, on nuclear energy. You know, what they do have right now is a nuclear energy program, and they've had that since, I guess, you know, the 1950s. Um, interestingly, you know, they were you know, creating nuclear energy you know, for their own power grid, and then you had the uh, 1979 revolution in which the Shah takes over. I mean, the Shah is deposed, and uh, the Ayatollah takes over. And the Ayatollah, he thought, he thought the nuclear energy program was um, kind of like one more... Uh, indulgence by the Shah, you know, that it was like this expensive program that they shouldn't do. Well, then the country started having power shortages and uh, that he was convinced, oh, okay, you know, nuclear energy could be a good thing for us to continue it. Um, so the program was restored. And it, I mean, it basically has been a nuclear energy program the whole time. Um, the uh, religious leadership of Iran has declared a, a fatwa, you know, a directive, Um, that bars the use of chemical weapons or nuclear weapons, you know, that they won't be Mm -hmm. a part of that. Um, And people say, oh, well, that's just a cover. They're not sincere. Well, one of the great ways we can see the sincerity of that, you know, the apparent sincerity of that proclamation is the fact that in the Iraq-Iran War, in which the United States was largely backing Iraq, Iraq used chemical weapons on Iran. Iran refused to retaliate. In kind, so I mean, there was a very real-world situation where they're being attacked by chemical weapons, yet the, the fatwa prohibiting their use or, you know, uh, was you know, seemed to actually you know, be yeah. operative, you know, and be and be effectual. Um, so if, you know, we've gone decades now of Benjamin Netanyahu and other uh, Israeli leaders, and then U.S. government leaders. Um, you know sounding this alarm that they're close to, you know they're going to develop a nuclear weapon they're going to develop a nuclear weapon they've always said they have no interest in it um, the Iranian government is a party to the nuclear non proliferation treaty so that so, so throughout this entire time you know that means when you're part of that treaty you've got international inspectors and monitors looking at your program to make sure there's no proliferation or or diversion of materials outside the energy program to you know so it's been under this. Watchful eye the entire time what the new Iranian nuclear deal was just take already what was already like the most closely monitored nuclear program ever and put that on steroids in terms of even more monitoring and disabling of of certain equipment that could conceivably be used you know to march toward a, a nuclear weapon I mean we're talking about pouring concrete in a reactor or some other facility <laughs> that, that that happened mm. um so
1: um
0: what well, what's There's the great, what's the name? Yeah. I'm sorry not to cut you off. Uh, what's the name of that agreement that Iran is uh, a part of? You said the non-proliferation.
2: Yeah, the non the nuclear non-proliferation treaty or NPT is the uh, shorthand version of that treaty.
0: Okay. And I'm not sure if this is true but are is the US uh not a part of that? Well, um, every,
2: yeah, we are tri- too. Yeah, the United States okay. is. Every country but on would, the earth is except for South Sudan Pakistan, India, and Israel. Now, there's Mm -hmm. some irony because you've got Israel (laughs) uh, uh, continually clanging alarms when they're actually a nuclear weapon power themselves that has never been uh, confirmed, you know, officially confirmed. Um, But they're definitely known to be a nuclear power. Uh, So, yes. So, yes, we're definitely
0: part of that. Wow. Well, when I watch the, uh, I guess, mainstream news, you know, we're constantly hearing that Iran is on its way to building a nuke and they're harboring terrorists. And this is a terrorist nation and um, they want to attack us. Um, what you're saying is like completely uh, different in a sense. I've never heard that um, actually Iran- the Iranian government um, prohibits the use of chemical weapons. So, um, you know, that's yeah. something that you, you don't hear every day.
2: No, absolutely not. I mean, the, uh, the American media and Western media does a great disservice to, to the you know, citizens around the world in terms of trying to understand this issue, because we've devolved we've to a point where mainstream U.S. media, they just kind of parrot whatever the government says without really delving deep or scrutinizing it. Um, uh, you see casual references to Iran, uh, Iran's nuclear weapon program when that should never, you know, at best, you should have the word alleged in front of it, um, but um, it's, there's, a, there's a great book. If people want to dive deeper into this whole topic and the, the, this idea and understanding that this is a greatly exaggerated threat, um, there's a, a book called uh, Manufactured Crisis, written by Gareth Porter, um, or you okay. could just know, look for interviews with him. Um, he's in a lot of interviews on the Scott Horton Show, which is a great right. uh, foreign policy show. Um, and you, you, know, you could listen to some interviews with him where he kind of ex- explains that, you know, some of the most touted so-called evidence of Iranian nuclear weapon ambitions are probably manufactured uh, evidence, forged documents mm. by probably the Israeli intelligence service and then kind of routed through and back out of Iran uh, to to paint a certain picture, I mean you. You can go back, and you've got you've got Netanyahu long ago. I can't. I don't know how many fifteen years, twenty years now, <laughs> saying that Iran is six months away from a nuclear weapon, over right. and over <laughs> for all these, all this yeah. time. Yeah. So, I mean, the the Iran nuclear ar- arrangement that uh, the uh, the so called you know, nuclear deal that uh, that Obama put in place. I mean, that was a deal that. Absolutely. I mean, there's probably, they weren't pursuing a nuclear weapon anyway, but that actually, you know, even goes even further in making, you know, sure that that was not going to happen. So it was said, oh, the deal's not strong enough. So then, you know, Trump completely abandons the deal completely. And now, you know, what's Iran left to do when they're faced with these sanctions, these economic sanctions? What are they left to do? except to say, okay, well, we're going to enrich to a higher level. We're going to enrich our... They can only play that card. You know, that, all right, then if you're not going to adhere to the deal, then we're going to enrich our uranium to a a higher level of enrichment um, in order to kind of force the deal back in. So it's kind of, it's just a whole perverse type of thing uh, where we abandoned Hmm. the deal, that, or I should say Trump abandoned the deal, and Biden now slow to return to it despite his campaign promises, we, that ensured there was no nuclear enrichment at any kind of alarming level. And so then the United States government leaves it, and now we're hesitant to get back into it. Um, uh, it I, I guess, it's, to me, it just underscores that there's, it's not about the nuclear energy program. This is about keeping crippling economic sanctions on the Iranian government, the Iranian people, so that Iran is a weakened state uh, to the benefit of Israel and Saudi Arabia, you know, it's 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 uh, this blunt force object being used to uh, weaken that country, so it doesn't rise as a regional power.
0: Right. Well, you make the argument that um, sanctions could be a form of terrorism because terrorism willfully harms civilians to accomplish political goals. Um,
2: yeah, not, I wouldn't say it exactly like that. Just right. I, I yeah, I'm sorry. I say, yeah, that's fine. I wouldn't say they're a form of terrorism, but um, and just to back up a step, you know, previously I had written at 28pages.org that site. Uh, now I'm writing at uh, on a, a Substack newsletter, Stark Realities with Brian McGlinchey, starkrealities.substack.com. So uh, listeners can check out this article. Yeah, advocates of economic sanctions mirror the morality of Al Qaeda, and what I do with that article is just examine the morality of economic sanctions. And, and we find, yes, that, that the, the, uh, there's this commonality between economic sanctions and terrorism in that both of them are, are ta- tactics that willfully harm civilian populations in order to achieve political objectives. So the terms aren't necessarily interchangeable, but there is this, this uh, sinister Machiavellian morality within each one that says it's okay to hurt innocent people uh, to accomplish a political objective.
0: Right. Um, And on your article, you show a tweet, an old Obama tweet, uh, with uh, Vice President Biden saying, I think this was in uh, 2012, on Iran, it says, these are the most crippling sanctions in the history of sanctions, period. Did he say that um, during the Obama administration? Yes yeah okay
2: yeah and, and so they're, and yeah. and do
0: we still have sanctions on them uh, right now
2: yes, yeah even worse mm-hmm. than in two thousand and twelve um, and so these are these are uh you know very broad uh all, almost all encompassing economic sanctions that affect every aspect of Irania iran's uh economy and thus you know, everyday life for the Iranian people. Uh, you know, they affect imports, exports, the export of oil. I mean, you're talking about the company's, the con- you know, country's livelihood. Um, that affects the people's ability to have jobs, uh, imports of food, equipment, uh, airplane parts, uh, medical medicine. Um, all these things are affected by this uh, sanctions regime. You know, it's it's one thing to sanction individual actors in another country, Um, let's say, you know, a a government official, you know, that could conceivably be moral if that official is indeed guilty of some harm himself, right? Um, But for this article, you know, we're talking about the the broad economic sanctions that really affect the entire country.
0: Right. And some of the examples that I think uh, human rights, Watch. I'm not sure if that's the group that reported right. on it. I think so, yeah. Um, yeah, they um, they reported that uh, some of the examples are middle-class Iranians resort to buy, buying rotting produce as U.S. sanctions take toll. Oh, yeah, that um, was
2: actually the L.A. Times. Yeah, they they are the ones that okay. researched that, and you know, we're looking at individual impacts. Yeah, rotting right. produce, that really puts a, a exclamation point when you're talking about day-to-day impact <laughs> on right. People.
0: Yeah, uh, a mother forced to abandon an apartment and move in with her mother because of skyrocketing prices of, uh, I think it was food, um, Iranian patients with rare diseases finding it difficult to access essential imported medicines, um, a pediatric cancer uh, treatment center was unable to acquire medications deemed to be essential by the WHO uh, because of these sanctions. And um, Iranians are finding it harder to acquire eye drops. I thought this was interesting. Um, Iranians find it harder to acquire eye drops, causing suffering for a large number of patients affected by chemical weapons during the Iran Iraq war. And uh, you touch on how during the Iran Iraq war, American intelligence provided targeted info to the Iraqi um, military, and they were aware that Saddam would use chemical weapons.
2: Right. So these people are being twice victimized by US policy. First, US government helping facilitate chemical attacks on them that caused uh, eye damage, and now denying them the ability to import eye drops to soothe their symptoms. So, you know, decades later, what, 30 years uh, later, uh, still uh, being victimized by US government policy. And of course, that also, that little chapter also. Underscores the hypocrisy of the U.S. government, where weapons, so-called weapons of mass destruction, chemical weapons, here are concerned. Um, you know, this, the sanctions are in place to uh, purportedly prevent, block, counter uh, this uh, idea of Iran pursuing a nuclear weapon or that type of weapon, mass destruction. Uh, you know, meanwhile, the U.S. government itself had helped make. Iran, the victim of WMD attacks, and um, mm. you know, there's, there's a link from my article when people, anybody's skeptical about that, but you've got uh, uh, U.S. officials who confirmed, you know, that that was the case, that um, knowing Saddam was going to be using chemical weapons, that uh, the U.S. government, you know, helped provide artillery targeting information
0: to Iraq. Wow. Wow. Who, who provided those weapons? Um, is there any information on that? Um, I think they were created
2: in Iraq. However, there was kind of a wink and a nudge kind of re- relationship mm-hmm. between uh, the United States and uh, European uh, companies and European uh, governments where they were kind of knowing that they were exporting materials that would probably be used to create chemical weapons. It was allowed to continue happening without obstruction. Unbelievable. Yeah.
0: Um, Also, one of the examples of the uh, effects of these sanctions in Iran is that civilian air travel is much riskier um, because I think your article says that um, Iranians tried to purchase uh, new jets, new aircraft from Boeing, and then the Trump administration, I think, prevented Boeing from doing business.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the... When the uh, Iranian nuclear deal, so we had all, all we've had all these economic sanctions in place for quite a while time and a long time, and then you had the Obama administration, you know, cement the uh, 2015 uh, nuclear deal to you know put extra controls on the Iranian nuclear energy program, and part of that was a loosening of sanctions. Okay, hey, we can start doing business again. So Boeing and I believe Airbus were all queued up to help Iran update its long, you know, neglected, uh, out of date, uh, civilian air fleet by selling, you selling them, uh, uh, new jets, um, only to have that yanked out from underneath them when president Trump abandoned the nuclear deal and put the sanctions back in place. So, um, so yeah, so you, so beyond even the new jets, it's, you know, it's harder for them to get, uh, uh, replacement parts even to repair the old jet. So you're talking about, um, again, putting civilian lives at risk uh, to, to uh, accomplish some geopolitical objective. Right.
0: Now, if another country did that to the U.S., uh, US um, wouldn't that be considered an act of war? Yeah, I mean,
2: there's, the, there's little difference between Putting mines in Iranian harbors and economic sanctions that are imposed you know, via a computer keyboard. You know, that, I mean, that's san- yeah, you know, Sanctions basically are arrangements and uh, a department at the uh, uh, within the U.S. Treasury Department that enforces them around the world and all that type of thing. Um, but the effect is essentially it's a you're blockading a country. So that, I mean, that it's economic warfare, um, which. The only difference is how it is implemented. you know it 's not a a mine in the harbor or a warship in their harbor, but you know the effect is the same you're, you're intervening to block commerce between uh, uh, Iran or some other co- and other countries um, to the detriment of the civilians and when when mm-hmm. sanctions are imposed, you were talking about the morality of them, but I mean the effect of them is often counter to what you're trying to accomplish as well. You're trying to weaken the regime of the country that you're sanctioning. However, it can help reinforce the power of the regime in a couple of ways. Number one, when uh, resources become scarce, now those in power have more power, you know, because things are scarce, and they've got the ability right. to, to determine who gets what, right? So they've got the ability to, to uh, influence exactly. inside the country. Number so two, keep keeping the
0: dictator can- stronger.
2: Exactly. And it can make them stronger in a second way, which is by creating a sense in the country that the entire country is being attacked or victimized by this foreign power. So you can lead them to rally around the leadership. Um, And just like the United States, we've got hardliners and softliners on foreign policy. The same thing is true within Iran. And so when we, when the United States government abandoned the Nuclear deal it you know, reinforced the position of the hardliners in Iran, who who had said we shouldn't be you know we shouldn't be making a deal with the Americans because we can't trust them you know and then what happens we, after all the energy went into that deal uh, it's yanked out you know from under them uh, despite their steady compliance you know Iran was in full compliance with the nuclear deal um, at the point when Trump backed it out so now you've kind of got this goofy impasse going on where Biden wants Iran to re- return to full compliance first before the United States will. Well, it was the United States at first uncomplied with it. So you would think <laughs> logically that it would be the United States that should be first to return to compliance you know, through lessening the sanctions, which I think is going to happen, but uh, it needn't be taking this long. And now we've got uh, you know, an Israeli attack on Cyber attack on their nuclear program to help elevate tensions and again strengthen the position of hardliners who say they within Iran who say they shouldn't be working with the United States at all.
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, in my opinion, this sounds like an act of war. Um, I think that if um, this was done to the US, we would retaliate in some form. Um, I mean, with the Iranians or any other nation that, that, uh, that was a victim of this, I mean, would they be justified in retaliating?
2: Yes. I mean, under international <laughs> law, these, these types of acts are, are considered, you know, warfare that would be, uh, would allow the victimized country to justly counterattack. Of course, you've got the, the dynamic of I guess the overwhelming difference in power and military power uh, of the two countries. So Iran, it doesn't have the luxury, I don't know if that's the right word, but it doesn't, you know, to put that in their playbook, oh, we're going to attack a U.S. port or <laughs> something like that, you know, they're probably not going to do that. But, um, right. but morally and under international law, uh, absolutely, that case could be made. And, you know, yeah. I think you raise a great question for the audience to ponder is, I mean, imagine if you're going back to those medical examples, you had a a child in a pediatric cancer institute or being for treatment who being told that, you know, a certain medication they really need, they can't have it because of actions taken by the Iranian government. Right. I mean, you'd be totally incensed and, uh, uh, you absolutely view that as an act of war.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um now you also write that Biden's deputy um Iran envoy and former Obama um I'm sorry, Obama sanctions coordinator coordinator, Richard Nephew,
1: mm-hmm. um
0: made some comments in, in a book about his thoughts on sanctions.
2: Um, yeah. Yeah, you've got When we talk about sanctions and, you know, like you quoted that tweet earlier where Biden and Obama were bragging about the crippling sanctions they were imposing in Iran, government officials will often say, well, we're trying to cripple the regime. They try to, they tend to de-emphasize the fact that this has a crippling impact on the civilian population. However, um, there are many examples where people are, government officials kind of slip or or just come right out and say it, that they do want to harm civilians. And, And that's... One example is, yes, uh, this Richard Nephew, he wrote a book called The Art of Sanctions, A View from the Field. So it's basically his little uh, playbook memoir of how he you know, helped impose sanctions on Iran. And he, he was celebrating the fact in this book uh, of tripling the, the price of chicken during uh, Iranian holidays. He uh, admitted that he was targeting manufacturing jobs. Um, he boasted about purposefully intensifying wealth inequality within Iran. This is a quote. Mm. So, he, thus depriving most people of the practical benefit of being able to purchase humanitarian consumer or luxury goods. So wow. this person is coming right out and saying that they want to harm you know, the civilians. And you
0: know, the, the,
2: the idea for a lot of these Ghouls in our in the U.S. government and allied governments is that, well, if we make life uncomfortable enough for the uh, citizens of a country, they'll overthrow their government or they'll take action. But and we just think about individual people. You know, it's one thing to think that collectively, but we think about the power an individual person has to change their government. You know. The United States is a you know democratic representative democracy, right? But I mean, think we we feel like we really don't have that much individual power to change the government. I mean, so and you're you're talking about this person thinking that it's okay to harm these individual people living their lives in Iran so that they'll change their government. You know, uh, it's right. you know. It's not even—it's uh, not a practical thing to even aspire to, really. I mean, on an in- again, on an individual basis, yeah, maybe at some point somebody would, in power, would take some action, but—but um, right. but some individual yeah. like the like that mother, single mother who's moving into her mother's one-bedroom place because she can't afford an apartment. I mean, she's supposed to uh, make. Undo the Iranian nuclear energy program. <laughs> it's, 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 right. it's not going to happen.
0: It's insane. Um, also, you mentioned the uh, Madeleine Albright um, interview. I, yeah. I remember seeing this piece, and uh, it's pretty amazing. I mean, just what she said on um, the 60 Minutes um, interview interview. I think it says uh, 576 um, died because of malnutrition and deterioration of water caused by U.N. sanctions promoted by the the U.S. Um, Leslie Stahl asked her, um, you know, do you think it was worth it? The numbers are about 500,000 children dying or 500,000 people dying from these sanctions. And um, I think you said some of those numbers have been disputed. Yeah. uh, Maybe maybe around 200,000, 100 to Mm 200,000 and um she asked or leslie stall asked her that question uh we've heard that half a million children have died i mean that's more children than died in hiroshima and you know is the price worth it madeline albright responds i think this is a very hard choice but the price we think the price is worth it um I mean, how can these people say that they believe in equality and justice and human rights and promoting democracy and all of this, and you know, all this principle? But um, they can go along, you know, promoting these sanctions and, and these uh, immoral acts, you know, that affect people's day to day lives. Um, right.
2: Yeah. I mean, that, that, that clip has gotten quite a lot of play and it should continue to get quite a lot of play. And uh, I've got it uh, embedded. People can watch it. And recoil in horror for themselves if they come to starkrealities.subsec.com and look at that article, uh, the clips embedded in it. Um, but yeah, and you're talking about somebody who's revered Madeleine Albright. You know, this is somebody who is considered you know, a stalwart states person of our time and breaking, bar- breaking barriers. Oh, it was, it was so marvelous uh, that we had a woman inflicting this harm on these civilians <laughs> instead of a man, right? That's groundbreaking. Um, yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, so these are, she was referring to these sanctions on the were imposed uh, on Iraq, you know, way back during the Clinton administration, and uh, and yeah, there's a there's a number that gets touted because uh, there was some there's a survey estimate that arrived at uh, 576,000 Iraqi children had died because of malnutrition and malnutrition and, and uh, the degradation of sanitation systems and water systems, that type of thing. Um, that number is is probably way too high as far as the, the numerically correct, um, which is bad. So I, I, people should avoid quoting that number because then you get people saying, oh, that study's not correct. And it's probably mm-hmm. true. So, but the truth is that the number's probably you know, somewhere between 100,000 and 227,000. So, I mean, we're still talking about an absolutely horrendous, toll on Iraqi children uh, from this, these, this uh, sanctions regime. And I think what's most disturbing about this interaction between Leslie Stahl and Madeleine Albright is that you would think that Albright would have had some instinct to deflect the claim that half a million children had died. Um, mm-hmm. She didn't even blink an eye. You know, she didn't say, well, we're not, you know, we can't be sure how many people were harmed. She didn't blink an eye. And so, I mean, she was basically stipulating that, yes, yeah, some horrendous toll had been taken on U.S. children. And she just marched right forward without blinking an eye and said, "Yeah, we, you know, it's a hard choice, but we think the price is worth it. We think it's worth killing hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children to uh, weaken the government of Saddam Hussein. You know, right. And, and I mean, the, and the... Perverse nature of all this rhetoric is that, you know, the United States government would say, well, we're trying to help the Iraqi people.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We got to help you by making you suffer. Uh, Right, exactly. um, You made a good point in the article. Also, you said uh, in both bin Laden and Albright, we see a calculated acceptance of civilian deaths. Bin Laden is basically criticized and Albright is revered. Um, And... You know, I th- I think about that. It just shows the the inconsistency because sometimes, you know, in this country, uh, we we have patriotic Americans that always side with American policies because we feel like you know we're taking out the bad guy. We look at the um, the Bin Ladens as being terrorists, but. You know, sometimes we don't really question what we're doing. Are we involved with acts that are uh, just as bad? You know, I think, um, you know, now or or over the past four years, you have a lot of people waking up and they're, you know, they've been awakened to this, uh, the deep state. So I think people are becoming a little bit more aware um, and seeing, hey, you know, there's some nefarious forces Um, behind the scenes that I guess we could consider (laughs) terrorists, (laughs) Very
2: much so. Um, And you know, and where sanctions are concerned, a lot of people think, well, I don't think we should go to war with country X, but I do support economic sanctions. And I don't think they realize what they're saying. And that's what this article is trying to underscore. People think, oh, well, it's not war. It's just sanctions. It's just the economy. When you drill down into what an economy is, you're talking about the allocation of resources, scarce resources, right, to uh, to the people. And so you're making them even more scarce. You're talking about when, you, when you're inflicting economic harm, you're inflicting personal harm on people. And I got a, a couple of emails after I published this article, which were kind of rewarding, where people were thinking, oh, I, I never really thought about this way. You know, I've always thought, oh, well, it, sanctions are this much better alternative to war, but as you yourself noted, there essentially are a form just a different form of war right. and and while people like you said too want to i guess a twisted idea of patriotism, support what the government does abroad, there's a uh, kind of a goofy expression uh, that Partisanship stops at the at the at the border or at the ocean, you know, that Mm -hmm. once we're talking about policies abroad, you know, it's incumbent on all of us to rally around whatever that policy is, which is just absurd on its face. You know, why is it? It's it's acceptable to, let's say, condemn U.S. tax policy within the country, but it's unpatriotic to condemn. Policies that affect people in other countries, right? I mean, it's just there's no uh, Moral rationale that supports that kind of thinking. So yeah, we uh, Yeah, a real patriot should be scrutinizing the actions of its government uh, That affect both our citizens and other citizens because guess what Uh, the Policies that affect other citizens can come back to harm us uh, in the terms, in terms of retaliation and uh, terrorism,
0: from specific. Right. And just to paraphrase uh, something you said um, relevant to that uh, in your article, you ask: uh, Is it less villainous to kill someone by depriving them of cancer meds, food, or aircraft um, aircraft parts through economic restraints, as compared to blowing them up with a car bomb? Just just to paraphrase. Um, and so, yeah, I mean that—that that makes sense. You know, it's kind of like it's just another form of um, violence, pretty much, uh, like covert war in a sense.
2: Right, right. Yeah, and yeah, the article I so, say, you know, it's the difference is that you know, terrorists uses explosives, and uh, uh, the sanctions regime uses computer keyboards and phones at a air conditioned office at the Department of the Treasury. <laughs> you know, that's that's the difference um, morally. Again, they're not. Um, sanctions are not terrorism per se, but on a moral basis, they share this common thread of harming, willfully harming indi- individual civilians uh, to uh, accomplish some political goal. Right.
0: And I'm going to wrap up soon. H- how much time do you have left? I, I can keep going another five or ten minutes. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, how do you respond to those that say, well, Brian, these people are terrorists, and they attack us um, because of their religion or well, because of their ideology and they hate our freedoms, and they attack our soldiers and they want to kill us and you know come over here and um, I guess blow our country up. How, how do you respond to people when they say things like that or that mindset?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's another example of u s media doing a disservice uh, in terms of informing the public about terrorism, and what motivates terrorism. Um, you know, one of the first line words out of uh, George Bush's mouth when he did the post 9-11 address from the White House uh, was, uh, I think he said, you know, countrymen or something like that, um, freedom came under attack today. Right. You know, From the very first words uh, in response as we started to march forward into the war on terror, were false. You know, it was not an attack on freedom. Um, it was, you know, the, the U.S. media really underscores and understates and, and tends not to quote or highlight the professed aims of terrorist organizations. Um, and so that you end up with a vacuum, which is filled by people's assumptions or worse, you know, filled by people, uh, propaganda and government pronouncements. Um, you know, Bin Laden and Al Qaeda, they're very specific in listing their grievances um, with the United States government. And, you know, they are, you know, the presence of U.S. forces in uh, Saudi Arabia and in the Middle East. Um, you know, having U.S. military forces in uh, the same country as uh, Mecca and Medina, you know, is considered, uh, you know, extremely... Uh, Inflammatory. Um, uh, the support another agreement. You know, the support of uh, dictators in the region. Uh, they perceive the U.S. government as kind of exploiting the wealth of the region uh, to the detriment of the people of the region. Uh, that the uh, these dictatorial governments are kind of live their lavish lifestyles, and the Saudi royals <laughs> live their lavish lifestyles, where this oil wealth could be better, you know, ex- you know, used. Uh, and benefit the, uh, the people, um, and of course, the U.S. relationship with Israel, um, which is the largest recipient of a cumulative recipient of U.S. aid since World War II of any country in the in the world, um, and we was considered to be a blank check relationship where the United States government backs Israel no matter what, um, you know, perpetuating the occupation of uh, the West Bank and Gaza and so forth. Um, you know, these are all specific political grievances, you know, they wanted the withdrawal of troops, they wanted the ending of support for dictators in the region, um, and the ending of this uh, support of Israel and its occupation. Um, That's not to say terrorism is justified, obviously, but those were the the motivating grievances. So those were their political objectives. So, and it kind of reinforces this parallel, uh, and as we examine the morality of terrorism and sanctions, both are, both are absolutely pursuing political objectives um mm-hmm. but and both are using harm against civilians to try to accomplish the
0: right well you just don't hear the other side you're not know, i'll be honest um you know growing up i'm i'm a christian so a lot of times you do hear um especially living in america you do you hear the narrative of well, they want to attack us. They, they hate our freedoms. And, uh, you know, as a Christian, you're taught to support Israel um, because it's, it's the promised land. And Israel is constantly, constantly being persecuted from these jihadists and these terrorists. Um, and so this is why Israel is acting the way it is. And this is why we support Israel and we, we fund them. Um, what, what do you say to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, this it's, it's all kind of reinforces itself. And, you know, it, it's in Israel's interest for uh, American citizens to think that way. Um, mm-hmm. It's in the interest of the government of Israel that uh, people in the United States think, oh, we're all in this together against Muslims, you know, when that is nowhere near the case. Um, um, you know, in a moment of accidental candor after 9-11, um, Netanyahu was, act, act, acted, act, asked, was excuse me, asked what he thought the impact of 9-11 would be um, on U.S.-Saudi, I mean U.S.-Israel relations, and he said something like, oh, it'll be very good. You know, he said something like that, and then he kind of had to edit himself and try to tone it down a little in terms of, uh, um, but it, it was very clear that it was seen as Beneficial yeah beneficial putting reinforcing u s support of Israel when in fact u s support of Israel helped motivate nine eleven not justify it but um, motivate it
0: mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean i um, i'm still on the fence about our relationship with israel i it's something I have to do more research on, um, mm-hmm. something I'm questioning, because like I said, growing up, you know, you're taught as a Christian, oh, we should support Israel. And, you know, America needs to stand with our allies and blah, 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 all of this. And so, um, you know, I have friends that, you know, raise questions about Israel, like, um, oh, did you hear about what the Israeli government did, you know, in this instance or that? And, I, you know, I hear all these um Examples about the Palestinians being being slaughtered and the genocide going on and all these things And I've never really looked into it, but it's something that I definitely want to take a look into at some point Um, Yeah, I mean, you
2: know A lot of people are taught. Oh, they kind of somehow are taught that it's patriotic to support Israel It's like patriotic for a US citizen to support Israel Um, We are it's, It's like this embedded part of our country somehow, but I mean I mean, I go back to Thomas Jefferson. You had the great quote, the great theme of peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Right. So, you know, it's one thing to trade with Israel and uh, so <laughs> forth, um, or any other country, Saudi Arabia, Iran, you know, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. And what we've got with Israel, even though we don't have a formal security arrangement a treaty um you know it's the quintessential entangling alliance where um their quarrels become our quarrels when that Mm -hmm. needn't be the case that's the kind of the defining characteristic i think of an entangling alliance is when somebody else's quarrels become your quarrels and um there is no reason why uh um israel's regional rivalry with uh Iran, you know, should be our quarrel. Right. And Jefferson, I mean, in Washington, in his farewell address, um, he kind of reinforced that too, um, that we, we should only have temporary alliances. It's one thing to form an alliance in World War II or that type of thing. Uh, but the fact that, like, for example, NATO is still going well after the collapse of the Soviet Union um, is only, you know, creating trouble <laughs> and uh, creating... More hostilities with, for example, Russia. So yeah, getting a little off track.
0: <laughs> and, and, oh, I think uh, Trump made a comment when he was in office, and he said, uh, "The only reason that we're in the Middle East is because of Israel." Or I, I'm paraphrasing. I'm butchering the comment. But do you recall him saying that? Something. I don't like recall.
2: That? I don't recall that specifically. Yeah,
0: of course. He yeah, you know, we went. He went
2: hard in the paint for uh, Israel. moved the embassy. Um, I think you know, on that first trip, Saudi Arabia was the first stop. I believe Israel was the second one. So. Um he definitely uh went all out to uh reinforce that relationship. I think they're even naming a train station after him in uh Jerusalem. Uh Trump? Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah. Wow, okay. Yeah. I gotta look for that quote. I, I I'm probably misquoting him, but um it was mm-hmm. He said something. It was a real. Uh, it was a small line that he he made, but then he was picked up by a few different sources. Mm-hmm. I gotta look for it. Yeah. But um. Anyway, on that note, I don't. I don't want to keep you much further, but I definitely want to continue this conversation in the future and talk about some more of your articles and go into detail about um, twenty eight the twenty eight pages a little bit more and uh, foreign policy and as well as Israel's influence in in America. But um. I, thank you for your time, man, and uh. Thank you for all your work and what you contribute.
2: Thanks, Rashad. It was great, uh, great to be with you and your audience. Appreciate it.
0: Oh, and last question. Where can readers find your work?
2: Um, yeah, the best thing to do is go to starkrealities.substack.com. Starkrealities.substack.com. It's a Substack newsletter. And briefly, um, you know, there's a new trend going on in journalism, which hopefully is maybe the salvation of journalism as we know mm-hmm. it in the United States. Um, with 28 pages, um, I with 20pages.org, I experienced kind of being on the wrong side of the algorithms of Facebook and so forth. Um, you know, I had several thousand followers on Facebook, and Facebook started trimming it way down to where I would post a groundbreaking new scoop article and they'd present it to only like four people, <laughs> 52 wow. people, 100 people. Um, and so, really, kind of put a wet blanket on it. The idea with the Substack newsletters is once you have this relationship, once somebody uh, signs up to receive the newsletter, that's a connection that, you know, can't, doesn't rely on Zuckerberg or Jack at Twitter, uh, to allow it to continue. Um, you know, you receive the, uh, new articles directly. Um, and you can sign up for free content, which right now all my content is free. Um, and then, or you can also become a uh, supporting subscriber, which at some point, some of my articles will not be, uh, viewable by all you know but but to paid subscribers but um if nothing else sign up for free content you can always unsubscribe um mm-hmm. and this is again a promising new model you know glenn greenwald you know, famous for having uh, uh helped with the snowden revelations um mm-hmm. and then he went on to found the intercept you know he abandoned the intercept because even at the the firm at the place he founded he ended up running into editorial uh tyranny <laughs> and so yeah um, so he he even has now a sub stack newsletter so it's a a neat avenue for people to explore you know, beyond even the Stark Realities as well. That's the best place. Uh, I would not even bother going to the Facebook page that I have because of the above. You can't even guarantee it. Um, I'm also on Twitter at, uh, at underscore Stark Realities. But the algorithm factors there is a problem, too. So I would tell them to go to StarkRealities.Substack.com and sign up for uh, free content at least.
0: Yeah, whatever we could do to uh, overthrow the the tech lords. you know. Yeah. <laughs> And restore the it. ability
2: to, you know, just exchange ideas. You know, we've gotten to a mode where uh, you've got Facebook and Twitter deciding what ideas people are allowed to even share or consider. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's my, it sounds melodramatic, but it, I mean, it ends up being a form of uh, thought control is what we're having now. Um, right. Yeah. On a very a variety of topics, you know, people who maybe question the efficacy of covid lockdowns, you know, I mean, you've got Twitter deciding, well, we can't let people contemplate that argument. <laughs> you know, it's, you're just right. talking about ideas here that are deemed harmful, quote, unquote, and these social media outlets have these departments of safety, you know, that you uh, know it's more and more like we're living in a Or Orwell kind of scenario or a Black Mirror episode if people have watched that
0: show. Right. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Oh, I did find the quote that Trump made. Um, it was in a rally in Winston-Salem in North Carolina on September 8th, talking about uh, – he was talking about energy independence, and he says that um, – I mean, he says other things, but he says the fact is we don't have to be in the Middle East other than we want to protect Israel. We've been very good to Israel. Other than that, we don't have to be in the Middle East. <laughs> so I can maybe I can send you a link to it.
2: Yeah. Moment of candor. Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> well, he, you know, he, he you know, he, he did have those moments where he would yeah. just be blunt and say these things. Yeah. I mean, that was his uh, thing. Yeah. yeah. But uh, anyway, great talking to you, Brian. Hope to be in um, contact in the future.
1: And uh, thanks too, for having enjoyed it. All right. well people I hope you guys enjoyed that episode that was an unreleased episode that I didn't get to put out because I had some tech issues but um gives you a little glimpse about foreign policy and the inner workings of how our foreign policy works uh, one thing I've always questioned is whether or not we're going to these wars or placing these sanctions on these countries based on uh, noble purposes are we ba- are we making our decisions? because of or basing our decisions on uh righteous principles are our motives pure when we place these sanctions on countries or when we go to war something I've, i've always questioned um but i think we need to pray for our leaders sometimes actually all the time we need to pray that they have some type of conviction that They're being convicted by God before they make these decisions to go into other countries and think about the effects that they have on their societies and their nations. And also question, how would we feel if those same sanctions were placed on us? You know, it's something that we need to think about. Um, I hope you guys check out Brian McGlinchey's article on the topic. And I was also thinking about the Constitution and what it says about these things. You know, from my understanding, Congress is supposed to declare war. And we haven't had a congressional declaration of war in a very long time. Um, So we're at a point now where the president can pretty much do what he want. Well, he can't, but he does things with the stroke of a pen. Um, I think there, there should be more debate, more discussion that goes into these foreign policy decisions, you know, instead of just um, rushing to judgment. But we really need to pray for our leaders and, and think more about how our actions affect others across the world. And uh, I would challenge you guys to read the Constitution, see what it says about these matters. Also, read the scripture and question yourself and ask yourself are are our leaders making godly decisions when it comes to foreign policy not only foreign policy but in other in all areas that affect affect us affect uh, our nation something to think about anyway i hope you guys enjoyed it let me know what you think peace